Hi everyone, Lockie Mansell here. While we're all cooped up in isolation, I thought it would be a prime opportunity to have a chat to some identities of the Aussie motorsport scene that don't always get the recognition they deserve. If you've raced in a New South Wales or Victorian state-level motorsport category, or you compete in the AMRS, you'll definitely know this week's checkered flag chat guest. Apart from being a passionate historic racer, Matt Barraguanath has overseen operations at two permanent Australian circuits, and he currently manages the AMRS. As you're about to hear, Matt loves a chat, and he has plenty of insights to share. So, we've split the podcast up into two parts. In part one, Matt recounts his introduction to the world of motorsport and talks about how he ended up as the operations manager at Sandown Raceway. He also tells us the story of how he got locked out of the gates at a Sandown V8 supercar round. G'day Matt, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, Matt, we know that you're a man of action. Normally, we see you running around racetracks with multiple radios talking to all different people. When you're not at racetracks, we know that you're a volunteer firefighter for the local fire brigade near where you live in Melbourne. So being cooped up at the moment in isolation, it must be driving you insane. Yeah, look, I, uh, you're very, very right. I do feel like a bit of a caged animal um, in, in, in some sense. So having to be home, and I've got a, I've got a young family and stuff as well, and we've very deliberately kept uh, kept our kids at home uh, as well. So it's been a bit of uh, daddy daycare while while mummy can still um, do some work and, and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I, it's very much gone from from when we had to to um, suspend AMRS due to COVID-19 to, uh, you know, to lots and lots of emails and lots and lots of phone calls every day, which is what happens when you're, when you're a series manager to, uh, to very little, because uh, there's, there's just not, not a lot to be organising until we know what, what the future holds. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit uh, very frustrating, very frustrating. Um, and as far as the fire brigade is concerned, that, that they've got very, the CFA have got some very strong um restrictions in place you can only attend the station for um you know emergency calls and and all those type of things and and you know you've got to be temperature checked and oh, it's 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 a, it's a funny world we live in it's a very funny world we live in so yeah we're going to touch on your current role with the amrs a bit later on in the podcast but this is all about finding out the backstory behind matt baraguanath what made you get involved in motorsport to start with and in particular, your love of historic motorsport, which I believe started in a paddock when you were a kid behind the wheel of one of the finest examples of British engineering, the mighty Mini Moke. What do you remember about that? <laughs> oh, you have been doing your research, Lucky, haven't you? Goodness me. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, my, my background has been, and because of my, my family background, particularly through, through my father and, and, um, and other, you know, uh, um, uh, close friends to the family uh, who have been supporting me through motorsport for many, many years, it has, has always been through, through historic motorsport. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the other uh, historic stuff um, shortly, but yeah, going right back to the to the to good old Mini Moke. I, I, I think, oh, look, I think I was four years old, if, if I recall, and and um, we used to go to a, a a very close friend of the family. It's actually my godfather had a uh, had a beach house down in Brimley. Down those that don't know where it is, it's just down there off uh, Ocean Grove. 
And um, back in those days, you had sort of these these paddocked sand dunes, and and um, we had the with myself and my brothers and sisters used to all jump in the back of the mic and you know get into the shops and come back again. And then this one particular day, said, you know, Daddy, I should drive, I should drive. And, and of course, you couldn't reach the pedals, and but I could certainly sit in the seat and steer the steering wheel. So they um, yanked on the choke, and in those days, good old manual choke that you pull the cable for, which gave it some revs, and um, they just sort of dumped the clutch, and off I'd go. And I just steer it around the paddock and around the paddock and around the paddock. And um, I just think, as my father keeps reminding me, um, you know, we either had to jump in it to try and put the clutch in to get you to stop or the thing was going <laughs> to run out of fuel, what one or the other, uh, to get me to stop because I was never going to stop my own way. Um, so, yeah, stuff. So, I mean, it, it, and, you know, you know, used to get to go around and around and up and down dunes and do things like that at, at, at four years old. So, um, and then it all took off from there. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, f- very funny start to it all. So, hmm. How did they end up getting you out of the car if it couldn't stop? Well, from what I've been told, my brothers or, or used to just run after me uh, and then uh, eventually just you know, either jump in the car as it was moving. Of course, that, that's nice and safe in, in today's world uh, uh, and put, put, the, put their foot on the clutch and, and bang it into neutral or, um, or uh, yeah, just quickly get in and turn the key off or, or something to that effect. Uh, <laughs> and, and I used to be most upset, of course, when they turned the key off or, uh, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it was um, – it was uh, and then, uh, yeah, try, try, try and then – always wanted to get back into it and you know every day we go driving we go driving so yeah i can only repeat what i've been told but um yeah so anyway so your love of driving then was obviously ignited from a very young age and you mentioned that your family had an involvement in motorsport uh mg is a brand of car that's been synonymous with yourself and your family so what was your first involvement in mg motorsport competition yeah, well, well, I mean, to turn it right back. So if you, if you go back into, um, but there's actually a fair bit of history with MG with with my with both my parents. Um, so my parents actually met through the MG Car Club in the mid '70s. Um, my mother was running for the female drivers championship uh, in 1977, uh, and evidently, I've been told that a week before I was born, she was competing in some little motor car or something to that effect with with me in the tummy still, a, a week away from being born. Um, then um, uh, my father was the president and club champion of the MG Car Club through the latter part of the 70s, um, and um, so you know, very much born into the MG Car Club in that regard. Um, ironically, the little MG 1300, which I'll talk about in Junior Club Championship stuff in a sec, um, the little MG 1300 that I um, competed in uh, as a junior, I came home from hospital in after I was born. Uh, the, the father was adamant to bring me home in an MG. So, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you wouldn't be doing that in today's age. It was, that, it was actually... Big. It's a bit cooler than the car that I came home from hospital in, which was a Datsun 120Y. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I did suggest it. I know my, my good, lovely wife, uh, Rachel, when uh, when we had our first um, Mason, I said, you know, we should be bringing him home in an MG and this kind of stuff. And and I just got that look, you know, that, that look that you get that, uh, yeah, no chance. It's <laughs> you know, These days you've got to have, uh, you know, your proper, you know, fitted seat and your harness and all that kind of stuff. So, uh yeah. Um, so, and look, you know, and, and they were very much an MG family in the late 70s. You know, my initials are MGB, um, you know, na- named obviously after after the car. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was, um, 
it was I was literally born in born into the car club um, in in that regard. So um, fast forward a little bit now in, in well into the eighties. So you know again through the eighties, my father was still doing a lot of club competition stuff, um, and uh, and you know and still I think he was he was president well in, into the early eighties, um, and then. Um, then sort of fast forward a little more when I was old enough to be able to drive. We because um, my dad actually sold the MG thirteen hundred, I think in seventy nine or eighty, and then we ended up buying the car back. Uh, I think it was in nineteen ninety we we bought the car back. Dad, dad happened to find it, and um, we did it up again. And um, I ran it in the uh, junior club championship for um, with the MG car club, um, which uh, was uh, which I won the championship for juniors for for three years in a row. And um, there was some really good avid competition and, and some good mates, especially. I mean, one, one, one mate in particular I've been mates with ever since then as well. So, um, and uh, yeah, I had a lot, a lot of fun. Everything from, from motor carners to observer section trials to um, club sprints at, you know, Calder, Sandown, you know, Phillip Island, Winton. Um, uh, yeah, so, and, and avidly just kept very regular comp- club competition, um, both from a junior level when, when I was uh, old enough to, through to senior level, uh, through the mid to late 90s. And uh, that was just, you know, just year after year, just ran, ran for the club championship and got plenty of class wins and plenty of round wins and all those sort of things and lots of little wood chocks and lots of little certificates to, to, uh, to hang on the wall. But um, yeah, so that's where it all started. Those junior championship events, you mentioned there that there were motor carners and events that were very much based around car control rather than necessarily outright speed. When you look back at those events, how valuable were they in terms of teaching you those fine motor skills in controlling your car rather than necessarily driving it on the limit all the time? Yeah, oh, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Lucky. I mean, I think you know, in in, in today's world, it'd, it'd be, I'd, I'd love to see it that um, that uh, you know, kids going for their L's as an example did, did a, a mandatory, you know, so that sort of driver control, you know, brake and swerve type type testing type thing before they even went for their license. Um, yeah, w- without question. And there's been a couple of times in my time of you know, I've been driving for. Uh, what twenty plus year twenty nearly twenty five years now. Um, it, there's been plenty of times where you know you're doing a hard break and swerve or or a, or, a, or a hard break to a stop or something to that effect. Where when if you think of motor carnering or where you're going around, which is that where you're braking hard and accelerating hard and doing things like there's an absolute direct correlation. Um, so. Yeah, it's. I, I would think absolutely. It, it's given me a, a good base to build skill on, and um, particularly then when you start going for your license and things, you know, you're almost a step ahead in some sense. So, hmm. one of the things, obviously, you made the progression then into circuit racing, and one of the things, particularly about the MG and invited series, that has become a, uh, a mainstay of the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championship is the variety of cars. So you've got everything from the really powerful MGB V8s that run at the front of the field down through the smaller four-cylinder cars. Increasingly, there's some more modern MGs coming in as well, like the ZRs and the MGFs. But you're behind the wheel of a little four-cylinder MGB, and often, particularly at tighter and more technical circuits like Winton, we would see you nipping at the heels of those bigger and more powerful V8s. Uh, how much satisfaction was there being um, sort of, you know, in one of those David versus Goliath style battles and being able to take the fight up to the more powerful machinery? 
Yeah, lo- 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 lots of satisfaction. I've got to tell you, and, and and you know, I mean, as I guess is it with with most most categories in in motorsport, it, it's all down to your budget. Um, and um, yeah, look, we, um, Dad and I, um, uh, built the the white MGB, which is a, a two liter motor. Um, you know, the, the car has extensive history in. Um, Group D, those that have been around for many years would remember Group D and, and Mark Sports back back in back in the day, um, which then you know correlated to to what the car still is logbook to um, in in today. So um, and look, you know, and obviously Winton was a very familiar track to me, and so you know you you, you knew you knew the every literally every inch of where the apex was and every inch of where the what the best entry point onto a main straight was and, and things like that. And and um, yeah, look, I, I had a lot of fun um, running the running the the MGB, um, particularly um, with some of the V8 guys, which would always be quicker in a straight line. But when it came to some of those tight turns at, at Winton, you do us right on them, absolutely right on them, and and uh, you know it was successful a couple of times and doing the dive up the inside and then of course you get to the main straight and they get past you again and you know i, I remember spending many race meetings um chopping and changing for for, for position uh throughout the whole um throughout the whole race just just doing that same thing so yeah it's uh, lots of fun lots of fun one of the prominent figures within that MJ racing scene was someone who I know that you became very close to and very sadly he passed away not long ago, and that was Paul Trevethan. So uh, how did you first get to know Paul and what was your involvement with him? Yeah, the, the Paulie, um, Paulie and I were very, very close, um, and an absolute great, great shame that he's that he's left us as early as what he has. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of family history with with Paul. So turn the clock right back even way before I was even born. Um, uh, my dad was racing in MGA um, back in the I think it was early 70s, early to mid 70s, and um, Paul was the race engineer on the car then, um, and uh, did a lot of work. So d- dad and he uh, were 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 good mates and Paul did a lot of work on dad's race cars well well before I was born um obviously you know born into the MG family and Paul Paul was part of that um he had kids uh pretty much the same age as as, as myself and so again you know as part of the MG car club family you, you you grew up with um you know us all you know hanging around racetracks and and you know getting dirty in, in the garage on a Saturday with 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 your with Paul and with dad and getting grease all over ourselves and all over our nice clothes and getting into trouble for it and all the other things as you do um and um and and paul was very much you know i'd I'd known since literally before i was born and and he obviously was around uh, our family um all through my growing up um and when old enough to to get the circuit racing license and um and particularly into MG racing and for that matter, state series and historics and things. He was very, very supportive of me um, uh, doing that. And uh, yeah, we, we had a very good relationship as far as him being able to um, help me, you know, help him with cars, him help me with cars and, and, and you know, do work on them together. And then, um, you know, then I was lucky enough after that for him to uh, offer me some, some sponsored drives of uh, a couple of his cars as well. So, hmm. Were there any particular pieces of advice that he gave you or any particular memories that stand out for you in the time that you spent with him? Uh, I think I think the absolute one that, that sticks out would be probably the, the, the first win that I ever had in, um, in an MG, in his MG GT V8, the, the beautiful um, orange car, and um, which was Winton Historics 2012. 
And um, yeah, look, we, we, we'd been fighting, we'd been raining and, and Paul was very against um, running cars in the rain. It was, nah, pack the car up, we're off to the pub top thing. And I convinced him and convinced him and convinced him, no, 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 we'll just put some different tyres on and away we go. And just as well we did because it, it did fine up after qualifying. And um, we were um, fighting all weekend, both with qualifying and into race one through with um, Rusty French in the, in the Pantera. And um, we... Uh, we ended up getting past him and, and it was just one of those sort of, you know, words of wisdom with which only Paul could say to you that, that, you know, we were sitting in the dummy grid and, and he came up and, you know, they'd said, start your engines and we're about to go. And, and, and Paul came up and said, oh, um, just yelled in the window and I hardly understood what he was saying because by this stage all the cars are revving and, you know, ready to go. And he goes, oh, the, the car's running the wrong brakes. It's running the wrong brakes. And I said, uh, okay, is it to say, like, what are you telling me this now for? Like, I have no idea what you're telling me that for. So I drove out and just sort of digested what he said. And, you know, you're trying to warm up the car or warm up, warm up your brakes or warm up the tyres. And, you know, those that have run the short track at Winton before, it's a, it's a very short warm-up lap. And particularly if you're sort of in the, in, the, in the top three, top four, and you've got a big field, you're sitting on the grid for a fair while. And um, so I was in P2. And um, and then it came to me uh, in such a in such short races, he wouldn't get enough heat into the brakes, and would, for that matter, would have to brake a lot earlier than what I would have to. And that was, it, 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 had he have said it to me in a clearer fashion, it would have been a lot clearer for me. But that was his his sort of, um, you know, his his way of telling me that you can get him under brakes. Is, is the easy, easiest way to say it. So sure enough, we got a couple of laps in, got some heat into the tyres, heat into the brakes on my car. And I followed him around for, for a lap and you sort of sort of very quickly saw that he was braking way early, way, way early. Um, and then which led me to um, setting him up for a pass uh, into turn one and uh, off the Winton Shaw track. And um, yeah, there's lots of photos and lots of, lots of media stuff around that, that happened and won that race, which was race two and then uh, race three also won again. So... Um, if there's a career highlight, if, if, if I had to say there was a career highlight, that, that would be particularly being able to share it with Paul and, you know, my dad and, and all that kind of stuff uh, and, and the team that we had there working on the cars. It was, um, that was an absolute highlight. But it was just that anecdotal, he's running the wrong brakes, running the wrong brakes. Like anyone else would say to you, hey, he's running the wrong brakes, so he's going to have to brake early, la, la, la. But I oh, know it was just a yell through the window as I was about to take off that, that you, he's running the wrong brakes and you sort of, sort of had to digest it. And then, um, yeah, sure enough, and, and that was that was our um, that was our, our leg up, so to speak, in um, being able to get past him. So, yeah. Over the last few years, in fact, probably the last five or six years, your motorsport activities, in terms of you competing as a driver, have had to take a bit of a back seat because of everything else that you've been involved in professionally, which we'll talk about very soon. But do you see yourself getting back into motorsport as a competitor at some stage in the future? Most, most definitely. Um, I, I miss it, miss, miss it terribly from a from a competitive perspective. Um, look, I, I think, you know, with young family and and um, you know money sort of being put into into houses and and um, uh, you know some minor renovations at home and young family and and obviously particularly COVID nineteen as well. Um, it's all just down to budget, Lockie. Um, to be honest with you. Um, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the uh, uh, I dearly love to get get back in, and you know I, I think probably get back into state series, which which there was some good competition in state series, 
um, you, you know, potentially look at doing maybe a couple of historic meetings. But um, yeah, it very much depends on sort of what car it is and, and, and what it's eligible for and it depends how I go. But the actual theory around me competing again, I'm very, very keen. I, um, I only had this discussion with the good, lovely wife um, about a week ago. That um, that you know, it's on the list that we need to. I need to get back into it. So, mm. be very good to see you back. That's for sure. So, let's dive into your the, the other side of your involvement in motorsport, which has been very much on the other side of the fence, and talk about some of the amazing experiences and achievements that you've had. But Initially, you didn't actually work in a motorsport role. You were working in real estate, weren't you, when you first started competing in the MGs? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, again, Lockie, you've done your very good research. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've done a, did a number of years uh, in um, in real estate, and uh, particularly, so initially when I first started in real estate, I was doing sales um in the outer, outer uh, eastern suburbs and then um, so that's the... why you're such a good auctioneer that's why uh, they always give you the auctions at the banana Warho club correct. dinners. correct yes correct correct yes you're lucky you, you made the connection absolutely yeah so i, I did i did a, did a lot of um uh some sales out there and yes plenty, plenty of auctions and and uh, that kind of stuff in the out in the eastern suburbs and and those were the days where you know some of the hills properties up in um, that I used to do trying up up in Tacoma and and Upway and a few of the places like that, um, you know, that, that they were that sort after you were blocking the road. I, I remember I remember getting into trouble from the police one time because we we held an auction and we were blocking half the road, and then then the police ended up coming and stopping the auction and shoveling people off the road, and then they stood there and in traffic direction while I continued on like it was you know <laughs> it was yeah I'd like you know you love things like that. Um, but um, yeah, uh, so you did sales, and then of course because I was you know still trying to do my my um, MG racing and, and and for that matter officialing, which we'll talk about sort of starting that all up as well. Um, uh, yeah, you, you obviously had to work six days a week, including weekends, and then um, the other sort of um, you know side note to that was that I could get into property management uh, and not not potentially have to work weekends. So um, I, I sort of went from sales into property management. You know, rightly rolling when you look back, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, was that the right thing to do at the time? Look, you know, from an income perspective, no, definitely not. Um, but for, I guess from, a, you know, I, I loved my motorsport and, and loved both being a competitor and being an official. So, you know, I wanted my weekends back and, um, you know, there was plenty of weekends. You'd work all weekend in, in real estate and you'd have one day off during the week. And, you know, unfortunately, motorsport wasn't operating on a Tuesday or Wednesday. So, um yeah, so um, we we um, uh, got into property management, and then so now sort of um, go go fast forward a couple of times, and um, we um, uh, had I was at an agency uh, in the city. I did a lot of sort of corporate leasing in the city when all the Docklands precinct took off. Um, I was um, I was uh, very much involved in a lot of that, and some of that some of the first few buildings through through Mervac and things like that uh, in in Docklands. Um, it was, um, yeah, very, very much involved in some of that high-end corporate leasing stuff around all the marinas and stuff like that in there. So, yeah. Uh, and then later, uh, towards the, the latter part of, of um, property management, I was more local to home. Um, so living in Aspendale at the time, I was living in Mordialic and, uh, and uh, was at um, an agency in Mordialic, so, uh, which was nice and close to home and just doing a lot of stuff around the um, uh, southeastern suburbs, you know, Mordialic, Chelsea, uh, Edith, Edith Vale, um, Parkdale, all those sort of areas. So, hmm. so. 
So at this stage, you're balancing your real estate career, sales, and then property management with your passion for motorsport as a competitor, but also as an official. So talk to me about where the official side of things start and what sort of officiating roles were you placed in initially? Yeah, so I think probably the, the where it all started was again through through MG um, Club, and then um, a sidestep from that is in up, up, up to Winton officials team as as, as well, and uh, it's in my, a long long history with uh, with as an official at Winton. Um, so yeah, you know between um, competing as a um, as a as a junior, then into more senior class, and then if if there was if I wasn't competing, I'd be an official for MG Car Club. So there was many many a. Uh, club sprints um uh motor car motor everything that the car club did um i was clock course for um for, for many many years um and then that then then developed to be deputy clerk of course for the state rounds at sandown through went through the mg um promoted round at sandown um both uh at the state round and then at the historics that, that still run there successfully um today um so yeah, there's many years of Clark, of course, for for MG stuff, um, and um, both at club, multi club, and and then and then into state level, uh, and then um, the sidestep to that, I was also doing, um, getting getting started at, at Winton as part of the uh, safety team up there uh, through um, Simon Mars and, and and Race Safe and and um, and the stuff up there. So, again, there was many meetings up there from at all different levels that we used to to, um, to run run up the highway and um, drive a drive a fire truck or, or drive a you know medical car or or whatever it may be and. Um, yeah, just you know, enjoy enjoy my motorsport, and you know, you'd um, you try and make it fit within your your paid employment, and, and get up there on a Friday if you could. But if not, you'd be doing a late run up there on a Friday night, and and um, yeah, try and make it work. So yeah, I've got very fond memories, particularly in the early days of us all, you know, camping at Winton down in the the the, the God forbid the, uh, the the bunkhouse at Winton, um, the, the the swamp pit, I think they call it today, um, and. Um, and uh, you know on V8 supercar weekends, and there's 15 of us all bunked in a bunkhouse, and everyone snoring and this kind of stuff. Is I've got a lot of fond memories of things like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, and it's the people that you meet, isn't it, in those sorts of environments, and it's the the lifelong friendships and relationships that you form with people as a result of all having to pull together to achieve a common objective. Yeah, definitely, and and I could sit here and and um, you know reel off names which I have met through motorsport, um, not 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 through MG, but you know through through Winton as an example, um, or, or motorsport in general through through as an official at Sandown over many years as well, and they're they're not only motorsport colleagues, I mean, but but a lot of people you say they're, they're mates, and, and you you pick up the phone, and you're going to ring them and say good day, um, and. Um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of the motorsport family. Whilst big, is 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 quite small. Um, and um, yeah, there's there's a lot of good good guys uh, in, in and girls for that matter um, in, inside motorsport. Which yeah, you, you've over the years you've, you've developed a, a good friendship with. And um, and you know we're on our Facebooks together and on all the groups together, and you see stuff that they do, and and you know you make funny jokes at each other and things like that. It just yeah, it, it's all part of the fun. So you've mentioned there or you touched on making your motorsport activities fit with your paid employment, but eventually you got yourself into a position where motorsport activities would become your paid employment, and that was when you became the motorsport operations manager at Sandown. So was that a culmination of the experience that you had had as a competitor and as an official 
combined with the knowledge that you picked up from your work in property management? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, Lockie, and and, and that was one of the one of the prerequisites um, that I distinctly remember that the conversations in um, in the many interviews that I had um, and, and sit downs that I had uh, to to achieve the role was that that they actually weren't. This may sound something sound something so 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 canny, but um, they actually weren't looking for someone who was so heavily involved in motorsport because because and to quote their words, they can get one of those people anywhere. Um, it's more about per, a person that had some facility management experience, had some um, high-level um, stakeholder management experience, had some, um, uh, you know, some some sort of corporate experience around some of the high-end stuff that they do there, uh, you know, some staff management experience that 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 sort of you know more sort of high-level stuff, um, and then yeah, obviously motorsport was was a good a good skill to have along the way because obviously it's a motorsport venue. Um, but the, their view that they were more far more focused in sort of, uh, you know, the other sort of more high end stuff. Um, so yeah. And, and, and then obviously the knowing, knowing everyone that, that you sort of did it, it, you could sort of land in the role relatively easily. And because you've already got a lot of those relationships formed, which, which I did. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, look, as far as moving from property management to there, it was one of those sort of things. I think with property management, there's probably only, with the greatest respect to, 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 to the industry, um, it, it's uh, it's probably one of those things, particularly in property management, that I think once you've done it, and I did it for, I don't know, 10, 11 years, I think it was in the end, um, uh, you, you probably get stale in, in, in the game and there's probably only sort of so much of it. You can, you can have arguments every day with people to pay their rent or have a blue about maintenance or, or whatever reason. There's just only so much of that mentally I think you can take. And I, and I was probably at that stage where, yeah, you know what, I've, it's, it's time to, time to get out if I could. And just by absolute chance, the role came up at Sandown that was advertised and um, I obviously grabbed on it with both hands and, and here we are. So, um, yeah. It's amazing how things work out that way, isn't it? Where as one door closes or where you're looking for a, an opportunity to change your direction in life, suddenly a position like that becomes available and it's almost like the universe's way of telling you that it was meant to be. Yeah, exactly. And and I guess, you know, you need to look back at it now um, is, you know, I'd, I'd um, not long uh, met uh, my, my now wife, uh, Rachel, um, uh, which was, as I remember just distinctly, was... Uh, into we, Rachel and I met uh, late 2011, uh, and um, it was early 2012 that um, that the, the role at Sandown started being advertised. And so you know you you meet, you meet a girl that you really like, and, and now you've got a job that um, that that you know if I geez if I could get it, it would be fantastic. And yeah, like you know you, you're ticking some boxes, and it, and it was it was a good part of life then that is the, you know this this is actually going along really well. Um, to be able to to get a job that was local. Re, re, relatively local again I was, I was living in Chelsea at the time um and um and you know in in a, at a at a venue which is iconic to to motorsport in in the industry and to um you know be around motorsport and or for that matter motoring um on a day-to-day basis I mean oh, what, what more what more could you want I mean from my perspective it was it was the dream job um and uh, to, to be able to get started with so um, yeah, so, and thankfully was successful for it. So, hmm. Just to put things in a bit of perspective here, Sandown Raceway is different to pretty much every other racing circuit in Australia in that the circuit owners, which is the Melbourne Racing Club, don't actually promote 
any of their own racing events. All of the motorsport events that happen at Sandown are basically dry hire type arrangements where a customer will come in and promote and run their own event, and that's everything from state-level events to some of the high-profile national events like the Shannon's Nationals and Supercars. Was it much of a challenge having to deal with all of those different customers and trying to keep them all happy? Yeah, it, look, it definitely was. And, and I guess probably first and foremostly, and, and just, just to touch on MRC for a second, and, um, and, I, and I'm still uh, very, very good friends with um, the, the, um, one of the managers at, at, uh, at Sandown directly. Um, and, you know, MRC are a horse club, priority one, priority two, priority three. And then priority four, they they fit in motorsport, and and that's that's nothing. That's not talking against them. It's just it, that's their core business. Um, there's only one. You, you know, I can think. I think of one or two. I think there's one in New Zealand as well. There's where the where there's a um, as far as venues in around that have got a horse racing um, uh, track on the inside, and then a motor racing circuit on the outside. Uh, and so you've got that challenge of obviously scheduling. Um, what takes priority, what doesn't, you know, for the horse track to run, they had to run, they had to run horses carefully across the main straight of the car track. So you definitely couldn't have any cars on there whatsoever. So it had to be complete dead days from a track hire perspective. Um, you know, they at the time were running um, what they, they like early training sessions. So like they'd be running horses on the track at, at um, like 6am doing, doing jump practice or, or doing um, start practice and doing things like that. And then you'd have a car client due to start at nine. So to do that, you'd, you'd have to be in early to make sure that the main straight was clear and the bridge was off the track and the track was was clean, more to the point. And all the horse people were out of there, closed all the gates and then the client was ready to go at nine o'clock. So it absolutely had had, had some challenges to work within um, the horse component of it and still does to this day, of course. Um, but yeah, look, probably one of the surprising things, and, and this was something that I only learned very early in the piece of starting there, um, was that was that yes, you're quite right. MRC don't do event promotion um, except if it's horse racing. Um, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried uh, to convince them that that there is a business model around motor racing promoting, and and um, you know, with the right people involved, with the right officials involved, with the right clientele involved, you could actually you know make some money out of it. And um, yeah, look, no matter which way you, you, you try to decorate it for them, um, they just wouldn't jump at it. Um, but yet would put on a horse race meeting um, two days later, which you know was going to lose money um, because no one had come. So and back in those days, that they, they, they were it wasn't so much of a focus on betting. It was very much you know getting people through the gate and looking after them and hoping they'd spend money at the cafe and doing things like that. So um, yeah, but again, it, horse racing was their core business. Motor racing wasn't. So. Um, so yeah, so so uh, as far as the, the the clients, look, we um and uh, back in those days it was Rob Kirkpatrick and, and and co that were running the Shannons, um you know and and obviously uh, supercars and the state and the state rounds and the, the same the same state round promoters, both MG and Sports Sedan still still run them today, and then of course the VHRR that run the uh, run the historic meeting at the end of each year, um all very different clients, all very very different clients, and and anecdotally speaking, there's there's you know some some like some things and others don't like um, those same things. Um, and so you sort of very much had to sort of adopt your approach that, um, oh, well, you know, because if, um, if VHRR are coming, we know that they like to do this, this, this and this and they like things to be prepared in this way. Whereas if a state round MG are coming, then, then um, you know, they like to have things prepared that way. So it's, yeah, it is very much a different a different um, 
um, different ball game with each race meeting there that, that was that was uh, in as far as a preparation perspective. And the other thing too is is that during the week there, um, Sandan has a lot of on on uh, venue clients. Like there's a um, a bike training academy there which runs seven days a week. There's a stunt school. Um, they do jumps and do you know driver ed and brake and swerving and all those sort of things in the car parks. Um, there's um, there's other uh, a, a maintenance business which operates um, right, right down the back. So there's they they've got little small businesses which are completely separate to MRC. So the other thing is obviously you have to manage them as well and their expectations that their space wouldn't be available for particular days. And um, and you know obviously you can you can pre-advise the booking uh, well well in advance because um, you know your calendar. But at the same token too. Uh, oh, you know, can we just squeeze in another couple of hours? And it's like, no, 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 we've, we've got to set up this race meeting. You know, you've, you've got to get out of here. Like, you've got to clear the car park so we can, you know, put up marquees and do things like that. So, yeah, it was it, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. <laughs> so, incidentally, Sandown was actually where I met you for the first time. And I'm sure you will remember this. It would have been the Shannon's Nationals round. And uh, there was one very young and enthusiastic motorsport commentator whose duty that weekend was doing pit lane reporting for the production car series endurance races. And that's because there was, right. Because oh, there was I, refueling. That's right. Yes, yes. Because I thought I met you off Australia, Australia's Most Wanted, Lockie. No, sorry. <laughs> I, I must, have got, must have got my screens mixed up. That's okay. Um, yes, you're quite right. I remember this now. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So because there was refuelling in those production car races, the pit lane reporter was required to wear a fireproof race suit. And uh, it just happened to be that the only race suit that was available in my size happened to be Lauren Gray's race suit from the 2007 Bathurst 12-hour, which was hot fluoro pink. It, uh, and, and you know what? The, the memories are now coming flooding back here, Lockie, that, that how much, how much pictures got, how many pictures got taken of you and how much, uh, how much jabbing and, and prodding that, that got said about Lockie running up and down pit lane in, in, in a pink suit. It was, uh, that was one of my most fondest memories of motorsport. I've got to say, Lockie watching all that happen and unfold. I've got, I've got to tell you, it was, uh, yes, you, you're quite right. That was the first time we met. And, um, and I do seem to remember sort of saying to the management team upstairs, um, is the commentator Dan says, is he all right? Is he normal? Or like, is, is that quite right? Is that normal? And, and, and no, they said, oh yes, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, no, no, he's a, he's a special kind of guy, and um, and but uh, yes, you're quite right. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> Were there any other funny Sandown stories or anecdotes that you can remember that you'd like to share? Um, oh, look, certainly, um, you know, there's there's uh, you know some some of the V8 meetings there uh, that that uh, that I was part of. You know, there's. There's there's some challenges around you know the residents because um, it's so big and it takes up a lot of all the local roads obviously get chock a block because of because of car parking and, and and lines to get in the gates and things like that and oh, I distinctly remember one particular morning um, you know because we had overnight you know security crawling all over the place all during the night uh, and there's um, there's one particular morning I got a phone call because the phone was you know at, at over a V8 weekend the phone was next to your bed basically um, even when you try to get a few hours sleep and, and get home and have a few hours sleep um, and I got a phone call at about four o'clock in the morning um, that um, someone had gone around and, and jammed Araldite into all the padlocks on the uh, on the, all the external gates. 
<laughs> and we and we and we can't get in. <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean you can't get in?" And and I said, "No, well, the security were on the inside because they were obviously roaming around the venue during the night. But all the teams and 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 and, and associates were all due to or start arriving by about five, and um, things like the rubbish truck and things like that that were due to come in during the night to to, to go empty all the bins and then go out again before the team started arriving. Um, they were all waiting at the gate to get in." So, oh, Matt, Matt, what do we do? What do we do? And and you sort of woke me up out of a startle. I've got what, 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 what do you mean you can't get in? You what? You what? You can't get in? What? So, um, yeah, very quickly, I uh, threw on the nearest bit of clothing I could find and literally flew out the door. Um, and thankfully, I had a spare change of clothes at work. Um, but um, yeah, I, not even I was able to get in. And and um, little little did they know that there was um, those that have been going to Santa for many years would, would recall there's a the, the the where you park your trailer directly opposite gate five e but up a bit there's a there's a there's a set of double gates just there which are off must be off an old access road going back years and years ago but there's a, there's always been a set of double gates just there and they never ever ever got used uh, and um, the the bright sparks which decided to go down to all, all the external gates and put glue in them had forgotten about that ex that set of external gates and all I can say is thank goodness because uh, that was the only way we got in. The only way, and um, it and it, and it took, and of course, the padlock on it wasn't on the master system, so it took security to go into. Obviously, went to the office, got got into our key cabinet, get every key they could find, come back out, find try the keys on this on this padlock, and then. Um, you know, and then eventually we couldn't find it. So we ended up, of course, the, the master key, a good set of bolt cutters, uh, was what opened it and we're able to get in. And then, of course, it was one thing to get in, but at least then you could get in and start getting some tools involved. And by this stage, there's big lines up at the gate at uh, the overpass uh, gate at, um, at Princess Highway. There's already lines blocking the, the left-hand lane of Princess Highway of, of teams and, and you know, um, suppliers trying to get in to drop stuff off and get out the door again. And uh, so, yeah, it was fairly stressful start to the day. Um, but, but uh, yeah, we uh, ended up just angle grinding every padlock we could find. <laughs> Did you end up catching the guys who decided to vandalise all the padlocks? No, nah, we looked just, we got... just as well for them that you didn't catch oh, them. Oh my goodness, I'm telling you, it would it would it would it would have been a challenge to hold myself back. I can tell you, but uh, but we you know we're, we're talking, of course, the whole of whole of the venues on a master system, so they're not just you know padlocks you can go to Bunnings and buy over the counter. They're all you know UBU, you know Acerabloy things on a master system, and so like you know it was a. Oh, look, don't quote me, but I think it was a, a four or five thousand dollar exercise to go and have to replace nearly every lock and then weld them back to gates and do things like that. But um, yeah, it was one of those sort of challenges which you distinctly remember um, back back in the times. You'd think, look, you know, it, it was when I was driving in there, I was just the stress levels. There was almost steam pouring out of my ears, thinking, "How are we going to do this? How are we going to do it?" Like you, you couldn't you couldn't get in, you couldn't get out. Um, we had to get into at least because, of course, into the maintenance shed was just where all the tools were, and and you had to somehow get someone into there to be able to get angle grinders or bolt cutters or whatever it may be to be able to get to the gates. And yeah, so it was um, it, it was a challenge. And look, and um, I'll never forget getting the phone call. Um, one of the the management team from from V8s was then at the gate at the Dean Long overpass, and um, and he said, um, oh, Matt, just so you're aware, um, there might be an issue with security. Um, it seems that the gate on the overpass is locked and, and no one can open it. 
And I said, oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, geez, that's, that's, that's no good. And then just by absolute chance, about five minutes later, they got the angle grinder to it and got the gate open. And then he rang me back and said, oh, well done, Matt. It's all open. It's all, all, all perfectly fine. And I said, oh, good. No worries. Little, 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 little did he know that for three hours before that, we'd, we'd been you know, trying to get tools and open gates and cut, cut chains and doing things like that. But uh, Well, he knows now. You know, he knows now. Definitely knows. Oh, we know. We, we 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 had we had a chat late late morning once things come down to to advise him of the issue. But uh, yeah, it was um, that was probably that was a the stress levels were, were a challenge. That that was that one. Um, look, and, and I achieved I achieved some good stuff there as well. Um, there was MRC. You know, the place and still still to this day, the place is itching for a complete resurface. And um, you know, MRC will not spit, commit the money. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's probably a, a three to four million dollar um, project to to resurface the whole of Sandia. Um, so, but what, what what I was able to achieve in my time there was um, a partial resurface of some real desperate areas where there was some broken track and and some really bad bad cracks in the track and stuff like that. And that was, believe it or not, that was a quarter of a million dollars. It was two hundred and fifty k to um to 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 do that. Um, so we, we, we got a lot of, lot of external consultation, um, you know, people like Mark Scaife, um, you know, uh, Bruce Keys, uh, who was then the, um, the, um, you know, uh, head of, uh, manager, safety manager at CAMS. Um, we got, um, Johnny Bow. um, we got, we got some, some good feedback of some guys with some good knowledge of Sandown and we did a track walk and we just said, right, I said, there is no, we're very upfront with them. There is no open checkbook here, guys, but you need to give us where the absolute urgent, urgent stuff is. Um, and, um, and, um, a couple of guys out of state series came and walked the track with as well. So it was a good basis of involving, as as many people as we possibly could, um, but without having you know, a, a, you know, giving them a very upfront story that there is no open checkbook. I, I know you'd love to say resurface the whole lot, but we can't. So like, let, let's just go around and paint mark where where, where the urgent areas are. So, so we did that, um, and um, yeah. So then again, logistically managing that, where we had to have some dead track for, I think the project total project was ten days. Um, seven seven. It was ten days straight, basically all through a weekend and everything. So. Uh, and so we had to make sure that, you know, there was no track access, there was no horse racing because you couldn't have, um, you know, um, construction equipment working around on the car track while there was horses on the track and, again, mixing in, mixing in with, with the horse club. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and, and delivered, delivered that project. And um, so, yeah, unfortunately, it, it makes the track look a bit like a patchwork quilt in, in, in some areas, but, you know, the track wouldn't have survived had we not have done it in, in, even to today because there was water getting under the bitumen and that's, that's the worst thing you can do for bitumen. Um, the cracks in the track were getting quite severe. Um, so, yeah, and particularly cars with slick tyres can, can, um, can uh, just make those, those, those uh, cracks worse. So... Did that, um, you know, just things like um, a lot of cosmetic stuff around the pits. We placed the, the um, you know, scrutiny bay. Uh, that was that was a, a terrible, the floor, which was basically non-existent in the scrutiny hut, um, which had been there for many, many years. Um, yeah, um, they, and, you know, in, introduced some new clients to the venue. There's there, there was a, there was a lot of good, positive achievements, um, which I, I could definitely hang my hat on, uh, the fact that um, the place is today, you know, better off um, through, my, through my involvement and there's a lot of those clients are still there today. Um, Organising some course cars, you know, again, back to the officials, you know, the bus that runs around dropping the officials off and picking them up, that, that was that was my doing um, in connection with V8 Race at the time. Uh, the course cars that run around the place, that was my doing. Um, yeah, it's it's um, and and um, 
one of the other key components which I was actually proud of was the um, Grand Prix Celebrity Challenge, which, uh, which I was part of, um, which at the time was Mazda. And um, the two years that Mazda did uh, the Celebrity Challenge, we, in conjunction with Mark Scaife and Michael Massey at the time, um, conducted all the driver training for the celebs to come and um, uh, you know, be, be, get, obtain their licence and be educated, for want of a word, on, on how, to, how to behave on a racetrack. And I use that word, how to behave on a racetrack, I use that word very lightly. Uh, um, but the roll-on effect of that is that is that the testing that, as an example, and manufacturing in this case, was Mazda wanted to do at the venue pre pre the celebs coming along, was um, that that was also a key part to it as well. Because so, you know, because you had existing track bookings, they were preparing cars or they were, you know, put a new put a new solar brakes on a car and they wanted to come and test it. So there's a lot of that where you'd have a client on track during the day and they'd finish by, say, 4 o'clock, and then Mazda would ring up during the day and say, hey, we, we're thankfully they only just around the corner. Um, hey, we're just testing a new set of brakes. Can we come around and test them on the main straight for a while? So you'd hang around and, um, and let them you know, bring, bring a couple of their race cars in and um, do some brake testing on the main straight and see if they're going to be okay, see them back on the track, off they go again, and then uh, in the lead-up to Grand Prix and the sled challenge practice. So... Yeah, so that was um, that was an interesting one. You know, obviously, with you got all those personalities there and a lot of media there and and um, plenty of ego and, and all those sort of things. Uh, that um, and yeah, some of them you think yeah you're going to make it, and other ones you think you're not going to make this. <laughs> this is this is not going to end well for you. Um, I never forget. Um, I, I, I all I'll say is that she was she is a singer, and I won't mention names, but uh, she is a singer. Uh, went to go out on the track with her without her helmet on one day, and she got stopped at at, at the pit exit um, by Mark Scaife, and, and and he said, "Um, so what, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just you told us to go out on the track. Uh, yeah, yeah. You need to have your first of all, you need to have your seatbelt on. Number two, you need to have your helmet on." Oh, oh, do we have to have a helmet on now, do we? Oh, okay, sorry. And so it was just little little <laughs> things like that. And you go, oh, my God, you're going on a motor racing circuit at speed. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, How was their actual driving? Oh, look, um, like I say, it's probably 60 or 70% of them picked it up. Like day, day one was just shake your head type thing and think this, this is, this is going to end badly. But by day, by day two, once they started doing some laps and, and I'm also saying credit, credit to, to, to one was very much about stand on every turn, talk about apexing and where to brake and where to accelerate and do things like that. And then day two was then, you know, then started to try and do some laps and, um, by you know latter part of day two, they they started getting it, um, and then day three was very much about consolidation, do some mock races, um, and um, you know do some mock safety car periods, and and you know put some put some put a fire truck out on the track as an example, and see how they behaved, and yeah. Um, we, we knew that they didn't quite pick up on the rules at one stage and one of them went to overtake the safety car coming down the back straight and, and wondered why there was a pretty car on the track flashing lights and things like that. And it was just, oh, you don't get it. But, uh, yeah, um, so you could you could definitely tell some some were picking it up and others just, just uh, you know, didn't have a clue. So, yeah, we, we, they, they had some, some pretty close one-on-one tuition uh and um you know you need to these are the rules don't forget when the flags are out this is what you do and then there's a car in front of you with flashing lights you need to stick behind it um you know and, and all that kind of stuff so um yeah uh so that, that was fun and then if there's a, if there's a landmark projects that, that i was involved in you know i'm proud to say that that particularly that slab challenge stuff was was um was it was fun it was it was an absolute challenge um 
and but it was it was it was good to deliver it and then um uh get to grand prix uh because it was in grand prix week obviously uh because i did it the monday tuesday wednesday of grand prix week and then literally wednesday when it finished all the semi trailers put up in the in the pits at Sandown, and all these cars got loaded up onto the semis and um and straight into Albert park so yeah so so happy times at Sandown, but unfortunately it was during a period, particularly towards the end of your tenure at Sandown, where there was a lot of uncertainty about the future of that venue as a motor racing slash horse racing facility. Obviously it's based in suburban Melbourne, you've got the ever encroaching housing developments and developers who want to get their hands on big chunks of land in residential areas. Was it those factors that ultimately led to the, I suppose, the redundancy of that motorsport operations position at Sandown? Yeah, yeah, and partially. So, yeah, I mean, we, the, uh, the, there was sort of, there was a lot of discussion and, and being very sort of open and transparent about it, it, it was, there was a lot of discussion internally and you could just see a lot of, you know, big group emails being sent out from, from management at Caulfield, which obviously filtered down to, to Sandown. Um, about restructure and about um, you know the old saying goes do more with less. Um, you know we had we had a, a great team at Sandown at the time of both events people, so non motoring events. So we had a team that looked after festivals and and all those type of things that happened at the, the um, at Sandown. Plus you know the motorsport area and and then there was sort of more venue facility management side of things as well. And you know unfortunately that the the, the um, the organisation sort of made the determination that again picking up the 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 the, um, the sentiment of doing more with less is there's an event event management staff that um, are doing events there need to be across everything and and I was I must say across you know a lot of the festivals and things like that as well uh, as much as it wasn't my my key area of focus it was your you know you knew the customers you knew what they were doing um, but um, yeah and ultimately you know there's that that side of things from a restructure perspective the other side of it is um the there's a lot a lot of pressure as you quite rightly say there's a lot a lot of pressure for conformity around um the noise monitoring and and you know uh the, everything else at Sandown outside race meetings is 75 db uh and um the only the race meetings are at 95 db there's the whole and there's a facebook group for it can you believe um the whole residents action group against Sandown, and you know they're always you know laying the boots in against um against Sandown or laying the late sorry laying the boots in to council about Sandown, and so all that sort of conformity around keeping to your permit and and keeping to to, the, to what you're allowed to do and not to do and, and i was very much one to make sure we were doing that because you you know the, the, there's no um there's no argument uh, that you can have with it with council if you're conforming to your permit, and they can come and rant and rave about getting complaints all they like. But if you're doing the right thing, then then it's just a conversation. It's nothing. It's nothing formal. So um, yeah, so I was doing that uh, and very much very strong about um, delivering that, particularly around some of the car clubs. And you know, a lot of the car clubs tried to push the envelope a lot uh, when we just did private hires on the weekend with car clubs coming to club sprints and things like that. And you know, the, the noise limit was 75 dB and there's cars pushing into the 80s and things like that and then you'd pull them off the track and, and uh, oh, what are we pulling off the track for? It's like, well, the noise limit's 75. Like, there's a little bit of grace of maybe one or two decibel, but, like, your, your car's blowing into the 80s. And, like, and, and you know, and, and, and people just didn't get it. Um, that, that was, that was um, 
that was uh, a bit frustrating because that obviously affects the, the future of Sandan and what, what it can and can't hold. So, um, but uh, yeah, so back, back to the restructure, it, it was um, it was just it was just one of one of those sort of things. And um, I had another opportunity sort of on the pipeline, and then and, and there was a lot of change in management to a core field and a lot more, you know, finger pointing and and um, challenge around that. So it just became all of a sudden a uh, not a not in the easiest way to explain is not a nice place to work, um, which, which is a shame because I love the team there. The team there were were were, were, were a great bunch of guys and girls to to, to work with. Um, and then um, yeah, the restructure basically happened, and two two staff uh, essentially um, uh, were, were made redundant, and I was one of them. So um, yeah, and so the, the rest is history really from, from there. And um, so essentially, the the facility staff and one other events person were to run all the motorsport and all the other events that happened at San End, which was a challenge and a half. Um, so um, yeah, but now Brendan and Brendan and the uh, and the team there um, uh, just you know just mo- moseying along. There's always talk at Sandown about um, where the, where does the future hold, and you know the V8 contract's been renewed, so there's at least a couple of years um, in that still. Um, I think eventually, yeah, the the um, I think eventually that when as the price of property in that area goes up, and the, and the necessity to to build. You know, a nice big juicy ha- um, housing estate with a nice lake in the middle, which is essentially what what you'd have there. Um, I, I, you know, that eventually would come, but it's it's not in the immediate future. Uh, and um, and I think um, they'll just moseying along and, and until um, probably Caulfield uh, puts together a, a master plan of, of how it should and shouldn't be. So. Hmm. Now, chat with Matt Barrett one from continuing part two, where he details his time at Wakefield Park the Australian Grand Prix Corporation and his current role with the AMRS. Stay tuned for that episode very soon.